everyone, and welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and as always, you can find us on social media by searching Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That's facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram, and we'll pop up, and at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. And hey, please like, subscribe, follow wherever you're listening to this. Please keep up with all the things that we are doing, and leave us a rating, leave us a review, whatever you can do. We appreciate you. So... Uh, all of that said, welcome to Medium Cool. Uh, today, I'm going to give him uh, a lot of shit here. Uh, Joe was scheduled to be with me. And then uh, Joe just canceled a couple of hours ago. So guess what I'm going to do? I'm doing a solo episode. We were going to be covering uh, Crimes of the Future and Thor, Love and Thunder. I'm going to do both of those as well as the Jordan Peele film, Nope. I will be doing all three of those today, and I figure why not just go solo and uh, so everybody, uh, send him hate mail and uh, send him send him angry tweets and tell him uh, tell him you better get back on the show soon because you're a loser. <laughs> I love Joe. I'm just kidding. Um, but anyways, uh, all that said, I, I'm excited about uh, about talking about some of these things. And I got to say one thing real quick before I get started. I want to talk a little bit about a new Netflix show called uh, The Sandman. And I don't know if anybody listening to this is a particularly uh, large Sandman fan of comics, uh, but they are uh, one of my favorite DC properties, or rather, um, I think it was a Vertigo uh, release, but it, uh, which is like a DC subsidiary. And um, uh, these comics, I, I actually read just a, a few years ago, I think either during the pandemic or right before the pandemic. For the first time is when I read these. I think it was right before the pandemic. And I read all, what is it, 10 volumes? or ho- However many volumes there are, I, I read all of them, okay? And, uh, man, I just fell in love with these comics. Um, and and if, you're, if you're not familiar with uh, what the show is, um, it is uh, created by, or well, in the comic, but both are uh, created by Neil Gaiman. If you're not familiar with that name, where have you been? Uh, David S. Goyer is also a part of the creative team here uh, for this Netflix show, and and uh, he has a lot of writing credits. Uh, including Dark City, The Dark Knight, and Batman Begins. Um, you know, David S. Goyer has done a lot of work. That's just w- like three titles. He's done a bunch of other stuff, um, including uh, this, apparently this, is it the new Hellraiser movie? Yeah, this new Hellraiser movie that's supposed to come out. Uh, I believe uh, David S. Goyer is uh, included in that story as well. He's done a ton of stuff. Uh, you should definitely check that out. All that to say, though, the Sandman show is really interesting because if you watch a trailer, I actually don't think that the show looks that good. <laughs> um, it's funny because part of what doesn't look good to me also is like part of being accurate to the source material. So... Uh, I think his name's Tom Sturges, uh, uh, or Sturridge, Tom Sturridge. Uh, he plays Dream, which is, uh, or Morpheus, as they call him as well. He is the protagonist, and he looks like he's, like, straight out of uh, some, like, 90s comic book or something, really angsty looking and, like, you know, frizzed up hair and things. And he's kind of perfect, uh, you know, for the for the role. Uh, but it's just, it's just really funny to me. Uh, that some of the things that are accurate actually almost uh, are like aged or silly, uh, or or at times every time early on when I see when I see uh Tom Sturridge on there, it reminds me of like some like 
show that would be on CW or something, you know? And I'm not even putting this show over, which is what I want to do. So hear me out here. So at first, like, it just didn't look that cool. Like, there were cool aspects of it, but I also knew those are from the comics. So, you know, how good is this actually going to be? And I've only watched the first episode, but I got to say, I am fucking into this show. And I, I've been way too busy recently, so I, I haven't been able to watch more of it yet. But hopefully tonight, after I record this, I'm going to be able to watch some more Sandman. Uh, it is really cool. If you have Netflix, go check out The Sandman. I would love to hear your thoughts. Um, it has a great team behind it. Their goal was really to try to keep this practical. Of course, there's a lot of special effects in it because you just can't do some of the things. But everything they could do, apparently, they were trying to keep practical. And uh, Neil Gaiman wanted to keep the uh, keep it consistent with the source material while also allowing it to adapt to a new medium. Uh, so far, they're doing that great. I am actually really excited to see if this is as good as I've been seeing people say it is. And uh, also, Pat Oswalt plays Matthew the Raven, which if you're familiar with the comics, you'll remember the Raven, hopefully. David Thewlis is in it, which he is fucking awesome, that guy. Uh, I mean, they're, they're, the cast is is seems great so far. Uh, what is that dude? He played, um, oh my, uh, Tywin Lannister. I can't remember his real name, uh, but he's in the first episode, which is fun. Uh, the, the, good cast, a great story. If they're, if they're From what I've heard, it's actually really accurate to the comic. They actually are faithful. And if it's that, the story is great. Of course, this follows um, the story of the Endless, uh, I'm, I'm trying to look for all of the siblings that are a part of the Endless, because I know you have like Dream and Despair and Death, like they all start with D's, and um, but we, we follow Dream largely, I'm going to see if I can, oh there it was, I found it, uh, but it's like Destiny, Death, Desire, Despair, Delirium, and Destruction. Um, uh, of course, Dream being the sixth. And so these are all like these siblings known as the Endless, and they essentially like run our reality for all intents and purposes. Um, and uh, But the beginning of the comic series and of the show, uh, there is Tywin Lannister in the show. He, he, he plays uh, a different character that they call Amagus, uh, which is like a sorcerer or whatever. And uh, he performs a ritual that, or like a, a spell or whatever, that forces one of the Endless uh, to come to this plane. And he captures Dream. He's trying to get death, but he captures Dream in the hope that he can leverage to get something out of this because his uh, beloved son died. And uh, he's trying to get death so that he can bring his son back. Uh, and that's all in the very beginning. That isn't even what the show's about, right? But that's like already fucking awesome to me. Uh, so anyways, uh, I think the show is awesome. I think you should definitely go check it out. Uh, but all that said, that's enough about The Sandman. I love it. If you've never read the comics, you should definitely go check it out. These aren't just your typical comic books. I'm not even a huge DC fan, but I think DC probably does like some of the best non-superhero uh, but big comics, I mean, they had the Sandman, they had Watchmen, which is technically kind of superhero, but it's, it's different. It's just different, all right? Uh, they do some pretty great stuff sometimes. The Sandman is one of those things. Go check it out. All that said, I am going to uh, first hop into Jordan Peele's Nope. Nope, but written and directed by Jordan Peele, cast uh, Daniel Kaluuya, uh, Kiki Palmer, Brandon Pereira, uh, or no, no, sorry, uh, uh, Perea, sorry, Brandon Perea, uh, 
Michael Wincott, Wincott, which is awesome, this guy. You'd know him if you don't know him by name. Michael Wincott's great. Stephen Yoon, uh, Keith David. Uh, it, dude, it's just a, a pretty awesome cast. It was released July 22nd, 2022. Uh, it is currently still in theaters only, but I got to say, uh, you know, all three of these, I was kind of late to get into the theater just due to being busy and having things going on and uh, all of that. Uh, this summer's been pretty crazy. So, uh, and I, I've talked about having a friend stay with us and whatnot. The point is this. The point is this. I got around to it eventually, so deal with it. Anyways, <laughs> uh, it is about residents in a lonely gulch in inland California uh, who bear witness to an uncanny, chilling discovery. Now, some of these people, after the death of their father, OJ, and his sister, M, try to capture this uncanny discovery on film using legendary cinematographer Antler's Holst, uh, which, of course, this is a legendary cinematographer in the movie reality, and a Fry's Entertainment employee and self-described conspiracy nut, Angel. Uh, this movie is uh, a lot of fun. I want to first start off by talking about Jordan Peele just in general. Okay, uh, Jordan Peele, of course, blew up with his horror film Get Out, and then he did a follow-up, which I think was probably to kind of a, a, a less praise but still widely regarded as a good film which was us and then this movie nope just kind of fucking blew up like instant i mean i saw it everywhere pretty much and uh if i had to rank these films just to give you an idea of kind of where i put uh nope i i like all three of them to varying degrees um but i would probably say nope is my second favorite of the group but what's interesting is Nope is also the most grounded of the three films. It's the least ridiculous um, when it comes to uh, the uh, plot and when it comes to essentially what they're trying to get us to believe. So in Get Out, for example, spoilers here, and Get Out, we realize that it's basically a bunch of rich white folks that kidnap black folks, transfer their brains to the black folks uh, so that they can, you know, these are all older white folks, so they can kind of live in a new body because the black people are exotic, you know? Like, that's kind of the whole ridiculous kind of racist idea. I mean, Get, Get Out is, is commenting on these things, so it's great, but... Um, and uh, the whole idea is that their consciousness also transfers to this new body. Um, but, uh, well, I, I don't remember if they're actually putting their brain there, but the point is that their consciousness is traveling to the other body. I haven't seen it in a while. Uh, but, you know, that, that's, a, that's a, a fun story. It's ridiculous. It's, it's almost like once you get to the end, it's kind of schlocky and, and silly, and it's really fun. I have a great time watching Get Out. I think it's fun. I think it does certain things really well and the year that that came out which was 2017 it was one of the movies there's one of those kind of uh, I don't want to call it an indie darling but it was like a horror darling of the year right um, much like this year X is for me um, and there are years past where there have like um, uh, oh what is the uh, uh, don't don't breathe was like kind of a horror darling the year that that came out uh, midsummer was one hereditary as well. I mean, um, I don't know why I'm forgetting the other really big one where, uh, when people have sex, uh, it transfers the, the evil. I'm like spacing it. You're listening to this yelling the, the movie at me and I can't hear you. I'm sorry. But anyways, uh, it's, uh, Oh my God. Oh, it follows. <laughs> I fucking did it. So anyways, uh, but yeah, it follows was like a horror darling. Right. And so, uh, get out was that in 2017, and then uh, I remember I watched Get Out, I rewatched Get Out, and then I watched Us with uh, some friends. My wife and I watched it with them. 
And um, I was uh, relatively disappointed in Us, even though I still liked it. Like, I was overall positive on it. But it's ridiculous, but in a way I don't really appreciate as much. So I wasn't a huge fan uh, of Us, though I was overall positive on the film. I mean, I would watch it again in a heartbeat. You know, it's not a bad movie by any means. It just didn't hit that level. It was never going to be that horror darling of that year for me. And uh, there's that. Nope, on the other hand, is not really that ridiculous, with the exception of kind of the the gimmick of the film which if you've seen it it is essentially the reality of what this of what the uh this UFO I don't remember the other uh like uh, abbreviation that was given it's like a e something anyways um but uh yeah the UFO in this is uh there's an interesting kind of twist with it right but I actually think like the entire film is much more interesting than just like the horror aspects of it. And, you know, uh, one aspect of it, for example, is uh, Stephen Yoon's character plays a former child actor who has since uh, bought this kind of like goofy amusement park of sorts uh, in California. And he basically it's like this big cowboy theme and it's ridiculous. Uh, not in the same way as I mentioned ridiculous before, but it, you know, it, this is just kind of a silly thing. And then, uh, and, and Stephen Yu's character is uh, uh, Ricky, okay? And so uh, he is kind of living off the fame of his past, and he's running this place. Um, and at times, he will be doing something seemingly mundane, just telling a story or he sees a specific object or whatever, and it draws his attention in flashback back to the traumatic experience that he had that he kind of became most famous for, which was on the set of a show called Gordy's uh, Home. I think it was Gordy's Home. And uh, Gordy was a chimpanzee and the star of this sitcom. And Steven Yoon's Ricky was the kind of main young boy character that was friends with Gordy. But on one specific episode, with a live audience and everything, it was like a sitcom, uh, Gordy snaps and, like, murders a person, <laughs> like, uh, and, like, completely maims this other actress and just, like, does all of this crazy stuff. What a fucking great scene. I mean, uh, yeah, it's a bummer, and everyone knows I love Bummerville stuff, but, like, in this case, it's like, holy shit, like, the, the effect of that sequence and when they return to it and all of the implications that now make sense once you see it, it is so well done. And and I, I tell you that scene because you actually see part of it at the very, very beginning of the film. Uh, but that that is so great. And then you have the Haywood family, which is uh, O.J. Emerald, or they call her M., um, and Keith David, who plays Otis, the father. And, uh, yeah, the, like, like the family aspect of this is actually surprisingly good, the dynamic between each character. And then whenever you bring in, uh, as I mentioned, the Fry's Entertainment uh, and Conspiracy Theorist guy or whatever, Angel, played by Brandon Perea, uh, you know, he, he does a uh, an excellent job also adding another component to it. And then when you bring Michael Wincott into it, which plays Antlers Holst, which is the uh, legendary cinematographer or whatever, 
I mean, when you see who that dude is, if you don't know him by name, because I always forget his name, but I just know his face. And so, like, when I saw him, I was like, dude, I love this guy because he's great. And he's just, uh, he's just, he's just iconic to me. Like, when I see his face, when I hear his voice, it's him. And so, you have all of these aspects of Nope that are pretty grounded. Again, family and, uh, like, trauma. Like, this guy experienced trauma that I can actually find news articles where people have experienced chimpanzee attacks, okay? <laughs> like, you know, I mean, it's, it's yes, it's kind of ridiculous, but it doesn't feel ridiculous. And, uh, yeah, like, uh, Stephen Yoon's Ricky, you know, running this kind of weird uh, cowboy amusement place, uh, you know, it's like a glorified fair, basically. That's weird. That's wacky. You know what I mean? But it never comes off wacky. It all seems to make sense. The wackiest part, I think, is the revelation. Once you realize uh, kind of what the villain is, I'll just kind of keep that cryptic there. If you've seen it, you know what I mean. Uh, that's pretty bizarre. But I actually thought the end of this movie was fucking awesome. Um, you know, there is, you know how a lot of movies have a certain uh, conceit or like a gimmick that they do where... Um, you know, if you hear knocking, three knocks, click, 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 you know, or knock, 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 I guess would make more sense. You know, you, if you hear three knocks, like the devil's here or whatever, like whatever the thing is, or, you know, uh, you go to sleep and Freddy's in your dreams or, um, you know, wh whatever, whatever the, the, the gimmick is for a, for a villain to appear, right? Uh, or Candyman, say his name three times, Candyman, 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 boom, it goes, right? In this movie, you know, the... Uh, whenever the villain, I'll just say that the, the creature, uh, is, uh, think of it as like a creature feature, if you will, uh, you know, uh, when it is around all electric, uh, all electricity or all electric devices, even batteries or whatever, just shut down. So your phone dies. It doesn't matter if it has battery. It doesn't have to rely on being plugged in. These things die. So they're able to play with those ideas of uh, or those like visuals or those tension kind of moments uh, where whenever stuff dies, you know what's happening. Right. Uh, it's just very interesting stuff like that. But this is one of the more grounded films, and it is uh, about kind of like UFO stuff. And the only movie that came to mind, if you think of another one, please let me know what it is, uh, is M. Night Shyamalan's Signs. I couldn't help but think of Signs. Watching this, not that they're anything really that similar at all, other than uh, you know you are dealing with um, an uh, an extraterrestrial, so to speak, and uh, you, you they're trying to figure shit out, and they don't believe that's what it is, so they're trying to figure out stuff. Um, you know, it, it, the only movie I can think of that has a vibe like this is Signs. I can't think of anything else. I would again love to hear your thoughts on that as well. But this is uh, a repeat relationship uh, here with Daniel Kaluuya and Jordan Peele working together again. Uh, of course, Kaluuya is absolutely awesome uh, here. Same with uh, Kiki Palmer. And uh, th they're really great. But Jordan Peele is so good at capturing certain moments. You know, for example, th there's a point where... Uh, where Kaluuya's uh, OJ goes into the uh, horse stables and he's going to go uh, see what's going on in there. And, and I'll just say that there's a horse stable sequence uh, where he sees some things. And uh, that sequence uh, from beginning to end was actually 
like kind of stressful like even my wife and i were seeing in theaters and even she was like oh fuck you know like like, <laughs> like it was like kind of a, a weird situation it's a really simple thing but sometimes simplicity is the best way to capture your audience because uh what what peel does here is he helps or he uh constructs and uh, facilitates uh, via directing this film like uh, a really intense sequence. Um, and uh, th there are several of those. Again, they use uh, losing electricity and gaining electricity as kind of uh, communicating something and, and being able to work with things like that, uh, which is uh, just a really great choice. But Dan like Jordan Peele, rather, uh, is really good at not only those things, but also kind of knowing when to show you certain things, knowing when to show you violence and gore, uh, which does happen in this, but it is extremely sparing. Um, but I really, it like was a, a billion times more effective. Uh, you know, I like the movie X better. Okay. Like I loved that movie. It's a schlocky horror movie. I, I just really loved Ty West's style there. Okay. But like, nope is better at violence than that movie. <laughs> like, you know, uh, just because every time there is some level of violence or some level of gore, some level of horror, uh, direct horror, uh, nope, I think does a really good job there. And I have to give credit to Jordan Peele. And I want to give a shout out to Hoyte Van Hoytema, the cinematographer who makes this film look absolutely gorgeous and also has like a huge, uh, like stacked deck of movies. He did Let the Right One In from 2008, which is just the most incredible looking. I love the way that that movie looks so much. Uh, he also did Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which looks phenomenal. He did Her. He's also worked with um, Christopher Nolan a lot. He did uh, Interstellar, Dunkirk, which Dunkirk, get, don't get me started, it looks incredible. And he also did the Unfortunately, underwhelming, in my opinion, but the other Nolan film, Tenet, and he's also going to be doing, or he did Oppenheimer, the upcoming Nolan film. Uh, but he also did uh, even like the Bond film Spectre, for example. You know, uh, this dude has a specific style and a look. I mean, he is really, really good, and he makes Nope look majestic. And, you know, it's a Western setting, of course. It looks a lot different than all the other movies uh, that I mentioned but it does have a great uh, like visual aesthetic, a visual vibe that you can kind of sit with. And Hoyte uh, van Hoytema, sorry, is the director of photography here. He does a great job. And the last thing I'll probably talk about here is just the music. Uh, what, a, what an interesting soundscape to kind of set this, this, uh, this film in motion. It's by Michael Abels, uh, and he creates this... Uh, Man, I don't even know how to talk about it. He also did Get Out and Us, uh, as well as uh, several other, you know, he has several other um, credits uh, under his name, but those are probably, uh, I'd say, easily even uh, the biggest. He also did Bad Education from 2019, starring Hugh Jackman. But, uh, man, the, as a composer, this dude with Nope, he's doing this stuff where you have this almost kind of like uh, like native vibe to it. Um uh, not the band native, but like this, uh, it's like African instruments, 
or something, you know, um, like uh, African native music almost. Uh, you know, there are voices and there are uh, like these kind of almost like bongo drums and different types of uh, different instruments like that, uh, percussive instruments. But then, um, uh, you know, uh, over top it all, I guess I would say is, uh, you know, a kind of more of a traditional like horror soundtrack. But then the blend of those makes it untraditional, um, you know, and unusual. It, it's pretty great. I noticed it right off as, as we were watching. Um, and I just kept thinking, like, how interesting that uh, that that score is. Um, I, I think Nope is a is a solid movie to come out this year. Again, I'm I'm a bigger fan of X. A lot of people will probably disagree with that sentiment, uh, but uh, but Nope is definitely up there. I, I would strongly encourage you to check it out. I gave this a four out of five. Um, and like I said, this is probably my second favorite of the Peel stuff. I'm uh, more of a fan of, of Get Out. Uh, funny enough, for as much as I appreciate how grounded Nope can be at times, um, the part I love about Get Out is how fun and ridiculous it is. Uh, so, um, But uh, none of that is to say Nope is not worth seeing. It is a very interesting film. I was never bored. It looks great. It sounds great. It is performed great and is directed great. You should definitely go check out Nope. Next on the docket, however, I am going to move in a very different direction, going from Jordan Peele into the world of David Cronenberg when I talk about crimes of the future. Crimes of the Future, not the 1970 version, the 2022 version, by written and directed by David Cronenberg. The cast is Viggo Mortensen, Leah Seydoux, Kristen Stewart, Scott Speedman, and Don McKellar. Uh, this is a film that came out June 3rd, 2022, so I am a solid two months behind on this one, but it's Cronenberg. We got to talk about it. Uh, it is currently not streaming. Last I saw, it was still in some theaters. Uh, we're in that kind of in-between time right now. But uh, as the human species adapts to a synthetic environment, the body undergoes new transformations and mutations. With his partner Caprice, celebrity performance artist Saul Tenser publicly showcases the metamorphosis of his organs in avant-garde performances. Timlin, an investigator from the National Organ Registry, obsessively tracks their movements, which is when a mysterious group is revealed. Their mission? To use Saul's notoriety to shed light on the next phase of human evolution. Uh, this is a film I think is, uh, for me, I felt it was closest uh, tied to a film like Crash, by Cronenberg. Um, I'll talk about that in a moment, but uh, if there is anything to say, this is very much a Cronenberg movie. Uh, Crimes of the Future is a film about essentially the boundaries of what the human body can be, uh, essentially. You know, it is um, the idea that as we as humans evolve and as we change our bodies and as we do X, Y, and Z, uh, our body can react and nature can take over. And so in the case of Saul Tenser, uh, he is growing um, uh, new organs that are providing new, um, you know, uh, hormones and new, um, I don't know why I can't think of the word, but uh, new things in his body are happening uh, due to these. 
And he has all of these strange devices in his home to not only keep him comfortable, but also to help kind of read not only his vitals, but what's happening in his body. And Caprice, his uh, his uh, partner in crime, so to speak, even though there's not a crime, uh, <laughs> but Caprice is an actual surgeon who decided to work with Saul Tinser on his performance art. And what is his performance art, you may ask? Well, it is literally him going to these kind of underground uh, meetups, these clubs, so to speak. They're not really clubs per se, but these kind of like underground locations and using a certain device that Caprice controls to uh, essentially extract these new organs that are grown in Saul's body. And they do this publicly. Um, but there is a point where one of the characters says to Saul uh, something, I'll, I'll probably get this wrong, but something along the lines of uh, surgery is the new sex. And it is very much that. It is an erotic experience having these surgeries for Saul. Um, and so uh, the film is really kind of on the surface is really obsessed with these ideas of body modification and um, these kind of uh, these grotesque scenes that are used as kind of these adrenaline rush uh, uh, erotic moments in the film. And it's directly uh, tied with Crash in my mind because Crash is about an ensemble cast of people who are obsessed with car crashes and injuries from car crashes to the extent that a man uh, uh, fucks the leg wound of a woman uh, who got in a bad car crash. I mean, it's it's a fucking weird movie. I'm not even like a huge fan of Crash, though I'm uh, overall positive on it, but not just barely. Uh, it's not necessarily my kind of Cronenberg, but... Um, uh, that is definitely what we see here. I mean, instead of car crashes, we have people obsessed in a very similar way with body modification to the extent that people don't even really have sex anymore. Uh, there's a point where uh, two people are laying nude, uh, kind of cuddling each other as they're uh, being cut open with scalpels. And that's like their sex. You know, it, it's a very, very bizarre uh, film, but there is a plot. If you are, you know, keeping, if you're paying attention, there is a plot and through line, which is, as I mentioned before, um, you know, the mission of this mysterious group that is reaching out to Saul to use his notoriety to shed light on, you know, new a new phase or the next phase of human evolution. And so, uh, there is almost like an extremist quality to this film. Well, there is. And and it's it's right in Cronenberg's uh, ballpark. You know, he is all about body horror. That is what The Fly was. We see it in Existence. Uh, we see it in um, oh, like a Videodrome. Uh, you know, we I think I already said The Fly, uh, but uh, you know, we we see these thing, these these body horror aspects in so many of his films. Scanners, um, The Brood, uh, you know, all of them. So uh, you know, David Cronenberg is kind of the, uh, in many ways, like the godfather of kind of securing this body horror genre, you know, and uh, and, and we see it uh, on full display here. Uh, but but the interesting thing, though, is that the film Crimes of the Future, though it feels more like a movie um, like Crash, which is a mid 90s movie that he did. I think it was 90. I want to say 96. I'm looking for it right now. For, oh, here it is. Yeah, 96. 
And, you know, I, I also feel movies like Naked Lunch, which is from 91, and Spider, which is from 2002 or something. Uh, no, that can't be right. Um, well, yeah, no, yeah, 2002, that sounds about right. Uh, and, and, and even stuff like Existence, where all of the sets and all of the scenery in his movies at that time just looked kind of gross <laughs> and just textures upon textures upon textures i specifically like vividly remember this in spider i'm sure it's in a lot of his other stuff um but uh yeah there's a certain vibe to the way that it's lit to the way that it is uh the sets are decorated um and and things like that that really give me like a 90s cronenberg vibe big time and that's what this film reminded me of, 90s Cronenberg. Of course, I'm a bigger fan of his earlier stuff, um, pretty much pre-Crash. Uh, so especially when you get into like uh, Videodrome and The Fly, I mean, those are among my favorites of his. Uh, but, uh, you know, this this film uh, really does kind of fit into that, uh, that filmography pretty well. But it is funny because I, I do think of films like A History of Violence, Eastern Promises, A Dangerous Method, Cosmopolis... Um, you know, map to the maps to the stars. I don't feel like you get quite as much of this '90s Cronenberg vibe in those. It seems like you really took a turn once you hit a history of violence, and he really started kind of going in a different direction. And Crimes of the Future, in many ways, is a return to that traditional Cronenberg body horror that so many people have kind of grown to love uh, from that filmmaker. And so you get that here in Spades if you're interested in that sort of. Um, that sort of film, Crimes of the Future, is your movie. Now, uh, as far as performances go, I love Viggo Mortensen in this. I think Viggo Mortensen is so great. Uh, you know, he is, he looks so interesting in this movie to me, but most of the time he's just completely cloaked in this outfit where he, he all you can see is like a sliver of his eyes, like he's a ninja or something. Uh, and, uh, but then he'll pull it down and he'll talk to people, but he's constantly kind of choking, um, uh, you know, because there's something going on with his throat and he can barely eat. And there's just so much going on with this guy. Um, but he is this guy that just grows these weird organs that, you know, uh, that Lisa Caprice, uh, ends up surgically removing in front of people as their form of performance art. And so, uh, Lisa Du is also really good here. Um, she plays again, the, uh, the partner, uh, of Viggo Mortensen, Saul and, uh, and Caprice has an interesting, uh, relationship with these, uh, performance artists as well. Uh, I'll let you see what that is when you watch the film, but, um, uh, they're, they're, uh, what's the word They're uh, not rapport, but their relationship, I guess. And the way that they work together is, is pretty great. Um, I've seen Kristen Stewart uh, do better work. However, she is good here as well. It's just a different side of Stewart than we're used to seeing. Uh, kind of, kind of. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Something stood out about her a little bit, and I don't know how I feel about it yet. Not bad. Please don't mistake what I'm saying as bad. Just an interesting performance as her character, Timlin. Uh, who is essentially becoming more and more obsessed with these kind of uh, uh, body modifications and these kind of new organs and the evolution of people and the idea... She, actually, Timlin is the one that says surgery is the new sex, so it gives you a very kind of uh, distinct uh, view of that character. 
Um, but Kristen Stewart is good here. It's just an interesting performance. When you see it, let me know what you think. I would love to hear from you. Uh, I just thought it was interesting. Um, and then you have uh, Scott Speedman, which I mentioned. He uh, is a really kind of pivotal part, and you see him throughout the whole movie. And he's eating these weird candy bars, and um, the candy bar almost kills some dude at one point when the guy kind of takes it and tries to eat it. It's just like a weird, weird situation. That's all I'm going to say about Scott Speedman, but he does really well. I liked him. But, man, I loved Don McKellar, a name that I was not familiar with, though I recognized the face. And he plays a guy named Whippet. And uh, who works with Timlin, uh, with the government, essentially. And um, this dude is, uh, man, I love his character. I just don't know kind of how else to talk about uh, Whippet other than his entire personality and the way that he approaches conversations is so natural and so kind of believable. You can almost like pinpoint what type of person Whippet is because of how he talks and carries himself. I think uh, I think he's perfect. Um, I think uh, Don McKellar is someone that I want to memorize their name because, and I'm not good with names, y'all, but uh, I, I want to know his name because I think he was great. But if there's one thing about this film that stands out, it is just its overall look. You have the cinematography by Douglas Koch, who was the uh, director of photography, and I don't even know who to thank for all of the weird images and the weird, uh, like, uh, d the designed chair, for example, that uh, Saul sits in. I don't know if it's the production designer, Carol Spear. I don't know if it's the art direction by Demetrius Ketsikis uh, or Kimberly Zaharko. Hopefully I'm saying your names right. I don't know if it's set decoration by Demetra uh, Solansi. All I know is... Uh, this there are parts of this movie that remind me of stuff like Naked Lunch and that kind of older Cronenberg, uh, and I fucking love it. I love how weird it is. I love like there's a point where um, they you can sit in this chair. It's called the Breakfaster, I think is what it's called. You're supposed to eat breakfast in it and and just eat in it, I guess. And it's supposed to move your body like in the best position as you're eating for digestion or something. It's just like a weird thing. But, like, the whole time that Salt Tensor eats, it's just, like, moving, and it's, like, the least convenient thing ever, okay? <laughs> like, every time we see one of these chairs, it just won't stop moving, and it's, like, people are, like, trying to, like, get a spoonful of whatever goop they're eating, you know what I mean? And, like, trying to eat, but, like, they can't stop moving, so it's, like, weird. I don't know how to explain it better than that. It's just a very uh, a bizarre thing that I just love visually, it's just kind of the thing that I fell in love with with Cronenberg because he would always have these really bizarre visuals or these really bizarre stories and his kind of form of body horror always kind of connected with me in a strange way where I was just particularly interested in how he was going to go about things. And Cronenberg uh, hits that hard in Crimes of the Future again as well. And I'm just so thankful he does. I'm so glad to see a Cronenberg film like this um, and not that I've been disappointed in other, like more recent stuff. I just really love this kind of iconic, um, film. And of course, you know, this, I'm pretty sure this did pretty well. It can, I, I don't think it, I don't think it like won awards, but I mean, it was an official selection. I think people were, uh, were into it. I'd have to look into that more. So don't quote me on that. Uh, but overall, I thought Crimes of the Future was really interesting. If you're a Cronenberg fan, you should definitely check this out. Um, if you're not, 
and you're not super familiar with Cronenberg, check it out. Um, maybe, maybe. I, I, I don't exactly know kind of how to uh, encourage you to go about that, actually. Uh, but it is a weird movie. Um, it might feel slow for some people. Uh, I certainly felt like there were some lagging moments in it um, and some moments I think could have been either cut or reworked. Um, it really did kind of bring the entire film down a bit. Um, but overall, I was really happy to see David Cronenberg back to doing David Cronenberg stuff. I think this is lesser Cronenberg, uh, but still definitely worth seeing. I gave this a three out of five. Overall, positive on it. Um, not in love with it, but overall positive on it. Uh, Crimes of the Future, again, still in theaters from what I can see, but it should be out pretty soon. So keep an eye out. Uh, but that leaves one more movie for me to talk about. I'm going to talk about here in just a moment, Thor, Love and Thunder. Thor, Love and Thunder. This is the second movie that we saw the same day. We saw this and then we saw Nope afterwards. So what a fun, uh, what a fun uh, double feature that was. We watched Thor, Love and Thunder, directed by Taika Waititi. Written by Taika Waititi and Jennifer Caton Robinson. The cast is Chris Hemsworth, Natalie Portman, Christian Bale, who I think is great, uh, Tessa Thompson, Taika Waititi, and Russell Crowe. And the release date is July 8th, 2022. So a month ago, I am behind on this. I'm fully aware. Uh, it is still in theaters, which is where I saw it. So definitely go check that out. I'm sure it will soon be on Disney Plus uh, once it gets kicked out of theaters. Uh, after his retirement is interrupted by Gore, the God Butcher, a galactic killer who seeks the extinction of the gods, Thor enlists the help of King Valkyrie, Korg, and his ex-girlfriend Jane Foster, who now uh, inexplicably wields Mjolnir uh, as the mighty Thor. Together, they embark upon a harrowing cosmic adventure to uncover the mystery of the God Butcher's vengeance and stop him before it's too late. And let me tell you a little history with me and Thor, all right? I have, to this day, never read a Thor comic. Not, not a full Thor comic. I've read comics with Thor in them, but not like a Thor-specific thing. All right, so Thor is uh, not a guy I was particularly interested in until I saw the first Thor movie. A lot of people kind of eh, disregard that movie. I actually really like the first Thor movie. It's one of my favorite MCU movies probably. Why? Because the relationship between Thor, Loki, and Odin is a very Shakespearean story. And, of course, it was directed by Kenneth Branagh, who is famous for his depictions of um, Shakespeare stories. And uh, I just thought that was great. Is it cheesy? Yes, like all of the MCU movies are. Um, are the do the special effects look like video game special effects? Yeah, most of the time didn't have a huge budget. I get it. Um, are the scenes on Earth the by far the least interesting scenes in the entire movie? Of course they are. I want to see more of Asgard. I want to see more weird shit. Um, yes, all of these things are true. I get that the first Thor movie is not great, but I also don't, as if you listen to this, you know, um, as you know, I don't think, uh, really any of the MCU movies are that great. Um, the best highest rated one I gave was a four. Okay. So, I mean, that tells you how much I like MCU movies in general. But I thought Thor, the first one, had something special. Regardless of whether you were entertained by it, I thought there was something there that kind of set it apart from others. And 
it bums me out a little bit because The Dark World was terrible. Okay, the sequel to the first Thor movie, awful. Really terrible. Okay. And then Taika Waititi, a person that I'm a big fan of, love his movies. Um, I first found out about him when I saw What We Do in the Shadows, the film. Um, fell in love with it, one of my favorite films of that year. I love it. But I remember uh, when I found out Taika Waititi was doing Thor Ragnarok, which was the last Thor movie, I thought, hmm, how's this going to go? Because I have always been able to take Thor really seriously, and there is just a wealth of content that you could do with Thor that would be so interesting that you could take seriously that you could, you know, do this almost fucking Star Wars version of the MCU where you're doing like other galaxies and other like, you know, uh, like godlike shit. And it'd be awesome. You know, the opening of the Dark uh, World or whatever it's called, uh, the second Thor movie is awesome. It's like, they're like lasers and like giants, like different creatures and shit. It's like awesome. And when I saw like Thor was, uh, you know, essentially doing Planet Hulk, which was like a complete fucking waste of that uh, story. I wish they would have just done a Planet Hulk movie. Like, why is that hard? Anyways, um, I actually enjoyed Thor Ragnarok. I don't think it's that great. I really wish they hadn't made it a comedy now. But you know what? It did well. I'm glad people like it. I had a good time with it. It's fine. And then I see Thor Love and Thunder. And I think it's Taika Waititi. If they if the studios were actually going to let Taika Waititi do whatever he wanted and have just kind of final say, maybe as a comedy this would be awesome. But the problem with studios like Disney and making movies like this with their with their franchises and stuff, uh, whenever you have someone like Taika Waititi who has a very distinct style, um, you're going to get a watered down version of that. Okay, that's just always how it's going to be. It's never going to be full that thing. If Tarantino, for example, Quentin Tarantino, who has a very distinct style, did a Marvel movie, it would it would feel like watered down, second rate Tarantino. Even if the movie was good, it would not feel like a Tarantino film. Hence, why he will never make one of these. I just don't. He would hate not having more control than that. So I'm watching Love and Thunder, and the opening to this is fucking awesome. Christian Bale plays, uh, oh God, what is it? I already forgot his name, Gore, I think. And he is worshiping the sun god, and he has his daughter. His daughter dies eventually. This is all in just like kind of silent, uh, like little vignettes, uh, kind of show, telling you the story. And his daughter dies. He's so sad, but eventually finds this oasis in the desert. And in this oasis stands the god that he worships. And the god essentially uh, scoffs at him. And is just like, wait, you're like, you think I'm going to help you? Blah, blah, blah. He's kind of an asshole. And this sets off, you know, gore. And he's like, I'm going to fucking kill you. And then the god, of course, is just like, no, I'm going to kill you. I'm like way stronger than you. But he gets a necro sword. The necrosword belonged to a creature that the gods had just freshly murdered and put out because this person was trying to kill all of the gods as well. And because of his vengeance and need, the sword reveals itself and slides into the hand of Gore, and he is able to become the evil-cursed Gore the God Butcher. Gore the God Butcher is a fucking great character, I think. Not necessarily in how the 
Gore's depicted, I think Gore's largely wasted, to be honest. But holy shit, what a cool fucking character, the God Butcher. I'm into it. Basically a God serial killer. Let's do it, dude. Like, awesome. But uh, then you get all this other shit. Guys, it's no surprise. I'm not a fan of this movie. But when you have something that good and you start fucking off about Thor being some fat slob who has to get in shape and he's hanging out with the Guardians of the Galaxy and he's joking around, he's making all these jokes and trying to make people laugh. And then he's like trying to go talk to Zeus uh, and Zeus, played by Russell Crowe, is kind of a little bitch. And so, you know, he's trying to get something from Zeus so that he can, whatever. It's just like, dude, it's just, it just, ugh. It's just all the worst parts of Jane Foster and all the worst parts of their relationship. And it's just this half-assed relationship movie. And it's like this half-assed superhero movie. I This was disappointing for me. Because it started, I started this whole conversation to talk about how I was a big fan of Thor when the first movie came out. And since then... Though, again, Ragnarok I'm fine with. I just don't love it. But, man, they have just butchered this character that I think actually one of the few MCU characters that actually can have something fucking interesting to say because he is a god in a land full of mortals. And he is... uh, There are creatures and alien beings and shit that he can fight I think it's great that he could sync up with uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy. That works for me. Guardians works as a action comedy. Thor Love and Thunder does not feel like an action comedy. It feels like a half-assed comedy to me. And, and even though there is action in it, there is a difference between an action movie, a comedy, and an action comedy. Action comedy usually plays different. Watch the first Guardians of the Galaxy. That is an action comedy. I get that. It works for me. That, like, flows better. There's a vibe to it. It makes more sense to me. This doesn't. This feels forced. We're making a character that should not be this way this way. And so I'm sitting here watching Thor, and I'm like, fuck, man, you have great opportunities. Guardians of the Galaxy have a great opportunity to do new things. Uh, the Incredible Hulk is untapped potential. There's fuck, there is a fucking great movie in there, and just because they fucked up a few of them, they're scared to do them. There are certain characters that could do some great shit, way better than any Captain America shit. Oh, they I think they ruined the first movie. Some people love it, but that was like a period piece movie. That could have been awesome. It wasn't. Uh, you know, uh, Iron Man, still a dude in a big city just trying to save the city. Um, you know, same thing with Black Panther, same thing with all of these other characters, but there are some that transcend that. Thor's one of them. And what they did is they basically just made it a fucking comedy. And so it's very frustrating for someone like me who never gave a fuck about Thor until they made a movie. And I'm like, holy shit, they can do really unique, cool shit with this guy. This is going to be fun. And then now he's just a comedy. Why? Because his movies weren't selling well? Make better fucking movies. The second one was horrible. Can you fucking try? Can you just try, Disney? That's all I'm asking. Marvel Studios, within that Disney umbrella, can you please just make a good Thor movie? Because I understand Ragnarok did really well, but all of these just, they're essentially templates created by producers 
uh, and watering uh, who watered down their their directing talent and uh, forced them to essentially fit within a template. And that template is bullshit. And so what we get with most MCU movies, including Thor, Love and Thunder, are mediocre movies that have a surface level of entertainment that make people think that they love them and that they're great movies, when in reality, they're shallow as fuck and they're stupid. Why would I give a fuck about Thor and Natalie Portman's um, Jane? Why would I give a fuck about their relationship? I don't. I never did. The first movie was the closest I did. And then the second movie was horrible, and you ruined it. And the third movie, she wasn't in it, and that was good. That was the good part. Maybe that was one of the reasons that I liked it. I'm not sure, because all of the Earth shit sucks ass. And most of Ragnarok was set in Asgard or on a foreign planet. So that's awesome. But then you get this again, and you get fucking Jane Foster coming back. Now listen, I, I'm a fan of Natalie Portman. I think she's cool. But dude... She's so fucking boring in these movies. Like, what are we doing here, guys? Thor Love and Thunder is incredibly mediocre. Did I have a good time watching it with my wife in the theater? Of course I did. It was a movie theater experience, of course. But even then, I'm thinking, what is the fucking point of all this? Is it just to entertain and that's it? Because you're not entertaining me. So for me, on my scale, you're failing. Are you entertaining these other people? Because I heard a few laughs, but for the most part, that fucking theater was silent. Is this really that good? Um, are you really taking this in the right dis the right direction? Because my wife did cry at the end. There is something that is meant to be touching. I think it was butchered because of the rest of the fucking mess of a movie. Um, to say I hate this movie would be an overstatement because I don't. I actually think if you watch all the of the MCU movies, watch this. Why wouldn't you? You know what I mean? Like, would I watch it again to show someone the movie? Sure. Would I enjoy it? No. But, like, I'd, I don't, like, hate this movie. Uh, but this is a solid 2 out of 10. Or, what? <laughs> Not 2 out of 10. Sorry. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here. 2 out of 5. My apologies. <laughs> it is not 2 out of 10 bad, okay? Um, maybe not quite that bad. Uh, but it's, and you know what? It's not even that it's, it's uh, like terrible to watch or poorly performed. I'm actually glad Joe did not show up because he gave this on Letterboxd a three and a half out of five, which completely blows my fucking mind. And I just want to like chastise him right now because it's like, what part of this was actually good? What part of this made you go, man, I am fucking glad this movie exists. This is a great addition to the MCU. Like what person does that? He's a monster. Okay, <laughs> I'm allowed to give him shit because he left me hanging. All right. So anyways, uh, you know, Chris Hemsworth does a great I mean, he's Thor. You know, he does a good job. Uh, Natalie Portman is fine and she should be a lot better. She's OK in this movie. Um, Tessa Thompson and Taika Waititi playing the voice of uh, I think his name's Korg. Um and uh, Russell, like, okay, here's the thing. Russell Crowe kind of sucks in this movie. I actually don't think he's very funny, and I don't think he's great as Zeus. But I will say that Christian Bale's fucking awesome. So I don't think his character is used well or is particularly even that good because of the way he is used, even though I think theoretically he has some of the best 
opportunities in this movie to shine. Um, the character is interesting. It's just I don't like how it's executed. But the character of Gore the God Butcher is actually really cool. And I'm super glad it's in this movie. Christian Bale clearly lost some weight for this as he is no, you know, it's no surprise he does that for movies. Um, but he's just kind of thin and emaciated and he has like these, uh, he just looks different in this and I love that. Um, but man, whenever he is actually the God Butcher, he is menacing and uh, he really kind of goes all out, it feels like. I feel like Christian Bale uh, did a great job. I love whenever they get people of that caliber to do villains because I feel like if someone's going to actually go all the way and really give it their all, um, it's going to make it overall just a better film. Uh, but the problem that I run into, unfortunately, is uh, those characters that people like Christian Bale are, are uh, uh, portraying those characters are not written well enough to earn this performance. So it's like Christian Bale does a great job, but ultimately I wouldn't be particularly proud of the character because the character wasn't really used for anything other than to give the bad guys something to fight. And it's like, dude, you're telling me you're going to open the fucking movie with Gore the God Butcher and you're not going to give us more? Like, this character is a billion times more interesting to me than fucking Thanos. But because Thanos had his own series, like, mini-series and series of comic books and shit, apparently he gets uh, more of the uh, of this, of this the uh, limelight here. Uh, and I understand, dude, Infinity God, I get it. I get it, I get it, I get it. But I'm just saying, like, Core the God Butcher, man. Like, this dude could be a recurring villain. He could be fucking killing... Uh, gods. Okay, like, like I would watch this fucking series of movies. All right, and he's just kind of wasted. It's like it's not as bad as this movie, but it's like watching uh, the X Men: Age of Apocalypse. It's like Apocalypse is wasted horribly. Like, like it is a tragedy how much Apocalypse is wasted in that movie. And I, it, it's not that bad, but it's like, it just bums me out when you have something cool going and you're just like, nope, just kidding. We're going to say fuck you and we're going to take it from you. I love Taika Waititi. I think he does awesome work. I think he's a really knowledgeable filmmaker. I feel like he is just not, I don't want to say he's a bad fit. I don't believe that actually. I think Taika Waititi could do this well. Um, but man, with the studio and everything, it's like, why are we making this movie? I don't know. I would much rather see someone who would take Thor seriously and a writer or writers um, that would actually do like create a story that is worthy of a character this big. I mean, Thor is one of the headline Avengers, right? It's Captain America, Iron Man, Thor and Hulk. Those are your four big dogs, right? And, of course, Hulk is always a background character, it seems. And then, you know, you have Thor, and he seems to be just like the silly geek. And then you have, like, Iron Man, who was uh, a character that was like a wisecrack and, like, cool guy, right? And then you have the the all-American good old boy uh, with Captain America. But why is Thor the geek? He was supposed to be, like, this, like kind of god that didn't really fit into earthly culture because you know he's a fucking god you know what i mean anyways i'm rambling here at this point the point is thor love and thunder uh really does nothing to benefit the thor um franchise 
It doesn't really do anything to add any kind of great meaning or anything to the MCU. Uh, this is a movie that uh, I was excited to see because I got to see an MCU movie in the theaters and I've missed a lot of them up to this point. Um, and even though I don't like the MCU, I love Marvel comics and I grew up reading them and uh, they have a lot of my favorite uh, series, I guess. Um, like even uh, Ed Brubaker's The uh, Winter Soldier section of the Captain America uh, backlog, you know? Um, I mean, go back and read the Winter Soldier comics. Holy shit, that is good. Like, that's so good. And I and then that movie is one of, if not my favorite MCU movies. So it's like, uh, I get it. But, dude, like, just, you gotta do better. You gotta do better with movies like this because you're just wasting fucking great material. And what's gonna what I I dread is you know ten years from now when maybe the MCU's done, you know they're gonna fucking reboot this shit and ruin it all again. And all I want is just like give me a fucking Planet Hulk movie. Why can't I have that? Just follow the fucking comic story. Like why is this hard? Anyways, I'm 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 rambling. This is a, this is a two out of five easy. Like, this is not great. There is some surface-level entertainment. There are a few things that I find funny. Um, but, you know, uh, there's all... Like, I'll give you an example of what really annoys me. There's all this shit about, you know, Jane Foster has Mjolnir, the ha the classic, you know, broken hammer of Thor. Thor has this new one that he created, you know, in the heat of a dying star or whatever. Uh, this new weapon that he got in, what was it, Endgame or Infinity War, whichever. And uh, these two weapons, of course, can communicate with him, right? Uh, and his new axe is jealous of his relationship with Mjolnir. So like a jealous girlfriend, the axe acts up sometimes. Uh, and uh, this obviously is mirrored by Thor's awkwardness around Jane. And it's just sometimes painful to watch. I just don't like that aspect it just why is it there i just want someone to tell me why it's there other than they thought it was funny right yeah i'm bitter anyways all right uh yeah thor love and thunder there's there there's my kind of rambling of it i don't know what else to tell you either because i don't want to ruin the story and uh quite frankly there's not much to chew on here the special effects look fine. Like, if you like these sorts of uh, effects, I think they look pretty good. Um, I'm not a huge fan of just CG extravaganzas like this, so doesn't do a whole lot for me there. Um, Asgard is a fucking tourist trap now, which is super fucking annoying. Holy shit. I'm not going to ramble about that, but I hate that. I hate that so much. It's just gimmicky bullshit. I'm done. I'm going to go ahead and end this now because I'm like clearly mad about it. Uh, Thor Love and Thunder, two out of five stars. I'm sitting here talking like it's a one star movie. There is, again, surface level entertainment. It's not like a chore or painful to sit through. It's fine. Uh, but it just pisses me off that there should be more to this and there's not. Um, it's so easy to make more of it. Uh, they've done it already. And so um, I, I find it very frustrating. But anyways, uh, much love to Taika Waititi, though, regardless of this outing. I'm a big fan. Uh, and if you agree or disagree with me, uh, whether it be about Nope or whether it's about Crimes of the Future or Thor Love and Thunder, please hit me up. Medium Cool Pod on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. I will be right back to send you off.
Well, everybody, we talked about Nope. We talked about Cronenberg's Crimes of the Future. Jordan Peele, of course, did Nope. And then Taika Waititi's Thor, Love and Thunder. I'm trying to get back into this 2022 stuff. It's been difficult with our schedule this summer, but uh, things are starting to look up. I have a lot of stuff I want to watch. I'm excited to do that. But also, we have several guests coming up. I'm supposed to have Jake Bottolieri coming up here. Uh, hopefully, next week is when we're going to get that worked out. We're going to watch uh, a Sam Peckinpah movie. Uh, together and talk about that. We're also I'm also going to have a bunch of different guests, including uh, a documentarian by the name of Robert Muggy. I'm planning on having uh, some other musicians, some returning, some new. Uh, the whole thing. It's going to be a whole lot of fun. Uh, but uh, hopefully you enjoyed this episode. I love you guys. Thank you so much. Good night. Good luck. Take it easy. <laughs>